Hey, what's up? It's Jordan. The year is 2020. The craziness levels are crazy. And with all that comes, you know, the game industry doing what it does, which is adapting. And people are making changes. Things are going a little bit different now in terms of development, more distributed development. So before we get into the episode, I just wanted to let you know that if you are looking for resources, remote resources, designers, engineers, product managers, artists, legal help, audio, whatever it is that you might, you know, help finding, you know, doing user acquisition, whatever it is that you're looking for, I may be able to help you by pointing you to good, trusted resources. I've been in the consulting game, in the game industry since 2012. I know the players, I know who's good, and yeah, I kind of know who's not so good too. So, uh, Jordan at brightblack.co, I will do my best to point you to the best resources for your situation. Shoot me an email, tell me what's going on. With that said, let's get to today's episode. Thanks for being a listener. Stay healthy and uh, enjoy the show. Hello, sir. Hey, what's up, Gordon? How you doing? Pretty good, man. How about yourself? Do you remember that that um, interview we recorded uh, a little while back? I do. I'm going to publish it. Awesome. I, uh, it was funny as I, I had wondered if anything ever came of that interview. So what happened is my editor, he was working on another podcast that I that kind of took off and he sort of did a fade away and it just kind of tanked the mm-hmm. whole thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that'll happen. But now I've set up everything to do it myself, and I've been going through the interviews that I've recorded that didn't make it out and uh, taking the best ones, and I'm calling them Lost Episodes. Uh, awesome. I think the one we did is really, really good. I think it was a ton of value, so I'm excited to get it out there. Awesome. And my plan is to use this right here as like the intro to the to the episode. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm excited if you're excited. I think it was a really, really useful interview. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I'm trying to remember back on the things that we talked about, and I'm wondering what has changed since then, because it feels like this ecosystem is just moving at a million miles an hour. Some context changed, right? Like, the status of Zynga's changed and things like this. But a right. lot of the principles really haven't. One thing that was funny is we talk about um, Steam Spy, and I hadn't heard of it then. You know, now everyone knows mm. Steam Spy. So there's, there's things like mm-hmm. this. So it came and went. Steam Spy got got clobbered by steam they they reduced their api access and prevented them now from they're doing instead of doing deterministic data they're doing um sort of like they're guessing aggregates aggregates and estimates right yeah exactly. so there's things like that but in general the interview is just it, it totally holds up i know people are going to get a ton out of it and i just want to thank you for uh for being a part of it exciting the are you are you doing like intros of of who's who and because i'm kind of in a new role now and i have a little bit of a not quite public face yet but as sort of intended to have a little bit of a public face in this role at facebook say a little bit about that yeah so i am i'm in i'm in a new role at facebook called a game development partner and i'm working internally with facebook teams and externally with a handful of selected clients the thing that they have recognized over time that you know you and I have always known is that there are there's a whole other section of what drives the value in a game that was, that's the bottom of the funnel basically so that Facebook is really great in the top of the funnel but the bottom of the funnel is in the game and I am 
helping both educate internally um, the, the Facebook uh, client partnership teams to understand better like how to operate and optimize these games as well as plugging in with a handful of clients and doing essentially direct consulting very much like the work I've been doing for the last 10 years. Well, that sounds super cool and I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk with you again soon. Awesome. So Playmakers Podcast has a lot of really, really amazing reviews on Apple Podcasts and we got a new one just last night. And this one may have meant more to me than any other review we've ever gotten. And I want to tell you why. It's because it's been so long since we did a show and I feel so bad. I feel so guilty and ashamed when it's been a long time like that and you put out an episode, you don't know what's going to happen and it's scary. So to put out the interview with Michael Bross that I was very proud of and then to have someone immediately almost write a review and tell me how, you know, how the show has meant something to them and helped them. Uh, well, they didn't exactly say that. So w- let me tell you what the actual review said. So this is from VSPV. He's back. Awesome news. Five stars. I love this podcast. re listened to a couple episodes a few times, hoping for something new, crying emoji, but it's back. Surprise cat emoji, dancing guy emoji, and then, I don't know, like the little party popper thing emoji. I seriously got like choked up when I saw this last night. Thank you. Thank you. If you like the show, these reviews, they're like, um, they're like manna from heaven. I think you're going to like what we've got going on. Let me get you right to the intro. Don't forget to subscribe because we got a lot of good stuff coming. And this episode is no exception. It's awesome. This is my weirdly late in the episode intro to Playmakers, the podcast where I, Jordan Blackman, talk to legends and leaders in the game industry to get useful information that can help you grow in your game, in your game career, or in your game business. This week, our guest worked as a lead product manager at Zynga and a director of product at Daybreak Games, currently serving at Facebook as an internal consultant. We're talking free-to-play economies and so, so, so much more. This is ridiculous. Ladies and gentlemen, Gordon Rowe. Gordon, thank you for coming to Playmaker Studios. My pleasure. It's good to be here. We made it, and and I'm excited because I think you have a lot to offer our audience. And why don't we dig a little bit into your background so that we can we can talk about that? So yeah, absolutely. How did you get into this crazy world of uh, of free to play gaming? Really, mostly by luck. Um, good but, luck or bad luck? But, you know, it's it's <laughs> arguable. You could you could really uh, you could make the yeah you really could you could make an argument both ways. Uh, it was at this point in my career, absolutely, it's good luck. There's no question. I I love what I do. I love working in games, uh, and I do feel very lucky every day that I get to do what I'm doing today. And I wouldn't have I wouldn't be you know where I am working in the industry on products that I actually like, mm-hmm. which is kind of an amazing opportunity. I moved to San Francisco after working in IT consulting for a couple of years following business school, and an investor friend had invested in Zynga and and was very close to the HR department. knew that they were really hiring very rapidly in the Bay Area. They were looking for people with consulting backgrounds that were interested in and could sort of speak the language of games. And I've been playing games my entire life. I mean, I, my first job was working at the Babbage's in the mall no, selling wow. PlayStation games. Yeah. I, I, I had an been... EB Games gig oh, yeah. uh, nice. very, very, very early <laughs> on as well. Nice. Yeah, that's the, you know, because you got the, the store discount. You, we had the unofficial like video game rental policy where you could take games home for three days nice. to play them 
to explain them better to the customers, you right. see. And then you bring the back in, and this is the old days of just shrink wrap it in the back of the store and put the label back on it, and nobody asks any questions. Really, PC gaming was my core game experience from the time that I really, when I got to college, playing Quake 2. It's my claim to fame, my internet video game claim to fame. I was the number one rated Quake 2 capture the flag player in the world for one week in 1999. That's actually pretty amazing. I love using that for icebreakers at new jobs and uh, two truths and, and a lie. <laughs> and somebody at the party. Yes, at parties. Uh, you ever play two truths and a lie? We have to. You have to say three things about yourself, two of which are true and one of which is a lie. Mm-hmm. I always include that one because it's just far fetched enough that people go, "Wait, what? Really? Is that real specificity?" That's or right. Is that <laughs> that's right. That's well because all of them are that specific because <laughs> right. that's just how my mind works. Always been a gamer. That was where I was. You know, almost ten years ago, eight years ago now. Um, and you just got this mo- opportunity. Just moved out to San Francisco and was looking for work and sort of passing my resume around. And uh, you know, a mutual friend said, "Oh, I'll." I'll give it to the HR director, you know, over this company that I'm also invested in, you know, we'll see what happens. And Zynga was, they were just, they were really aggressively hiring like everyone that they could get their hands on right at that moment. When was this? This was uh, right around 2010. Oh yeah. That's, there were, that's about when I was yeah. being recruited. Yeah. A lot of people. I mean, Zynga bought whole companies, 30, 40 people at a time, uh, really just to acquire their employees for, for no other reason than to bring the talent in. Uh, very occasionally would would be related to what products they were working on. But for the most part, the amount of money that, that Zynga raised was pretty astronomical in the earliest days of the company. There were three rounds that went from, I think, 50 to 250 million. And then the IPO was a billion dollars. So there was a ton of money happening, you know, all around the time that Zynga was growing. And that's what they were putting it into was, was acquiring talent. And they, they were- They got a lot of amazing people. They really did. I was, that's literally what I was just going to say. There were a, a ton of just hugely, hugely talented people that came through the building there. Mm-hmm. In my mind, especially in the early days, because they were able to to attract people with that, the magic of sil- the Silicon Valley exit story, you know, that, that there was, this was a pre-IPO company that had raised enough money already that the IPO was, was ordained. Like every single person from the time that I got hired in 2010 to the time the IPO happened in like 2013, early 2013, I think, every single person that came into the building knew that that was gonna that that was part of the story and it's hard to find the you know the the unicorn the billion dollar valuation pre-ipo company that you can get equity in and do good work and then make good on the backside now the zynga story didn't exactly make good for a lot of people from an equity standpoint but that's a different part of the you know the story of having been there uh, i learned a lot both from from watching all of our games go up and i learned a lot from watching all of our games go down because those experiences were very very different and the ways people reacted to them, the way people reacted to failure was very different because of the success that we had had. Mm. And I think that that was, that was a large part of the, of the story of the decline of Zynga. And it was just, it was amazing to me because it happened so quickly, you know, in a four year stretch, it was the fastest company in history to a billion dollars in revenue in its first three or so years. And then, you know, within two years, couldn't make the transition to mobile. MAU is declining across the board. It's still solid. They're making money, but they haven't had any substantive improvement in the base, you know, the, the core business in, yeah. in years. You know, they, they had also attracted an amazing pool of designers that was also very appealing to have the chance to work with some of that. Yeah. Some of that uh, talent. But I think I think a big issue that they had was also that all that hiring. I mean, the the you know, you're, you're building your your business on this just rocket ship and there's just no way to how do you build the infrastructure fast enough that's right. really going to support that? Right. And they certainly were not were not 
putting that in place. No, and they, they, for a while prior to the, I would say the six months before the IPO, the company was very dedicated to promoting from within. And it was, the growth was so fast. That there was tons of opportunity for anyone who got in the door. I mean, I knew people that started in, in QA on a, on a Facebook game. I mean, this is like yeah. the sort of lowest level of, of entry level into the video gaming world that you could ever have. Mm-hmm. Uh, started in QA on Facebook products and within 18 months, had moved into you know principal analyst roles. We had a lead engineer that had come out of QA. We had several artists that had come through the QA department. We had artists that transitioned over into engineering. You know, there were people in the the earliest year, year and a half that I was there that were really taking advantage of the white space. You know, mm-hmm. as, as this company had experienced hyper growth, there were just opportunities to step in. You know, the 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 guy that transitioned from QA into engineering did it because like he kept finding bugs and they were simple like HTML bug fixes and he was you know messing around with HTML and he just fixed them and he went to one engineer one day and was like hey if I if I want to upload this like how do I upload this to the build and the guy was like oh he didn't know who he was right. just taught him right it's like you know here's here's how you do it <laughs> this is how you do a submit and this is how you run the uh, the BitTorrent script that pushes all of the updates to our servers. And you know what? I'll never forget the GM came in one day and he was like, wait, since when is Joe doing updates to the game? <laughs> but they were working, you know, so it, and that was it at that point. Like it was something that needed to be done. He stepped in and started doing it. And there was one question like, oh, why is he doing this? And nobody batted an eyelash after that because the growth was so hard to keep up with for every single person that was there. It was an amazing place to learn. And I, I also saw lots of people grow. And I think you know, we're still seeing that kind of Zynga diaspora. Yes. Uh, create a lot of great things. Absolutely. I love it. I think you're also one of the people who kind of came in and, and, and had opportunity and grew. So tell us a little bit about, about your experience. I mean, I had an interesting trip through Zynga. My, my earliest days there were a little bit confusing in the way that you can, without clear direction, when you land on the ground in an organization that's growing so quickly. I was not mentally in a place in my career at that point where I could just step in and say, oh, this is exactly where we need to go. Everybody follow me. I was I was looking for more uh, direction from the people around me to be giving me the kinds of indications of, of what was the right thing. Like I knew how to play games. I, I knew the things that I wanted to build for me to play, but I didn't have any of the other tools to understand uh, what the what the levers were, you know, what what the actual large moving parts are associated with making a game, but also making a game that makes money because they are different things. And that I think is is probably one of the most fundamental appreciations that I walked away from Zynga with is the idea that building a system that generates revenue is not necessarily the same skill set as building a game that people enjoy. It's only when you get both of those things together that you actually have a product that, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a functioning product that can pay the salaries of the people that are working on it that can continue to grow as its user base you know demonstrates what about the product it is that they like and it's a it's a hard set of circumstances to cultivate to to get you know the the engineers and the company and the vision for the game to align with what customers want and what their vision of the game and the the feel and the experience is going to be um and Zynga struggled to like found that alignment by accident in a few places. Mafia Wars was the first game that I worked on, and it was absolutely one of those games. There were there were decisions that got made on Mafia Wars very very early in the design of that game that turned into some of the biggest advantages for what the product was in its peak, especially. 
um, it was heavily, it was very, very social. It was a game that, you know, they had set an arbitrary limit where you needed 500 Facebook friends to be playing this game with you to be as powerful as you could possibly be in Mafia Wars. And the story goes, because I was not there when the 500 Mafia limit got put into the game. It was, you know, probably 12 months before I arrived at the company. But the story that I heard was that it was completely arbitrary. One of the game designers said, well, let's just set a number that's so high, no nobody could possibly hit yeah. it. And that way, you'll always be incentivized to add as many of your friends to your game as possible. Because that was the goal. It's like, well, let's get everybody to, you know, so every friend you add will help you. So maximize the number of friends that you can have in this game and see how it goes. And what it created was a, really a secondary social network. People who got really into Mafia Wars started going into the forums and adding themselves to these giant threads, they would literally just post a link to their Facebook profile and they'd say, add me. And you would get random friends from random strangers all across the country that wanted to play Mafia Wars and wanted 500 friends so they could be as powerful as they could be, would come into these threads and they would all add each other. And then suddenly your whole Facebook wall is full up with a bunch of random strangers and almost all of what they're posting is related to this game that you're playing. And this was the earliest days of Facebook before the feed algorithms were limiting what people would see before the, the notification channel was gone. So you could get that little red dot popping up just literally hundreds or even thousands of times a day. So it was a, a very noisy ecosystem. So it was incredibly, incredibly rapid growth because at that moment in time, nobody, there were no ads on Facebook. They hadn't turned ad, the ad ecosystem on. They were purely in a user growth mode, but they had exposed these two channels in the feed channel and in the request channel that Zynga recognized the value of in terms of driving growth in their games. And so this incredible like social mechanic is sitting behind Mafia Wars, powering everybody to invite everybody else in in a room, in a Facebook room that was completely silent. Like It was like a crazy person ran out into the middle of an atrium and started screaming. Mm-hmm. Everybody was paying attention to it. They were, they were the only, only screaming person in the building. Watch. That's yeah. right. And who isn't going to watch the crazy person screaming in the middle of the room? Um, and that turned into a lot of success very early on for Zynga. I think the challenge was ask your question. No, I just I want to I want to hear about the the kind of more about how you got from where you started Zynga to kind of where you where you ended. Okay, up. yeah. So that I mean that story was the first six months that I was there were hard because I was struggling to adapt to an organization with as much white space as there was. I spent a lot of time standing over the shoulders of Giants. our lead analyst. <laughs> Giant. He, he is. He was and is a giant. Uh, incredibly, incredibly smart. Like one of the smartest people I've ever worked with, uh, a guy named Valen. And he's um, he's actually still at Zynga, has done incredible work for them, you know, for years and years at this point. But he was he was a friend to me when I first got into the company. Um, and a lot of things were, you know, cars sort of zooming by me on the freeway. And I was trying to figure out what it was that I should be applying myself to that was the right opportunity to make a mark inside of this new company. Because you can feel that, you know, when everybody else around you has that sort of entrepreneurial energy of like, how do I get involved and make a difference? You know, how do I, how do I, you know, be a shining star in this organization and, you know, make the thing that I want to make? How do I make this game better? And that was really my, my deep focus was like, how do I make this game better? How do I make the experience for the people who are playing it more fun in a way that I would like it to be fun? And I only mentioned that because I found it very interesting at Zynga that I would say more than half of the other product managers I worked with didn't have those bones in them. Mm -hmm. They had deep analytics, but they didn't have gamer bones. And I think in the end of the of the story of the company, that showed a lot in 
the ability to really micromanage to the numbers without really seeing what the long-term implications were for those decisions. So my first stop really was ramping up on analytics inside of Zynga. It was learning how data was stored, learning SQL, getting in and writing queries, simple queries against learning the, the data tables that we had that actually the way that we were storing different aspects of user behavior just to understand what questions we could answer. That was what that that exercise turned into was an understanding of do we have the data to answer this question that I want to ask? And with coming from the ground up in that way, you know, and I have a background in engineering and I've worked at least a little bit in computer science. I know enough code coding to be dangerous, basically. Never spent a lot of time doing it professionally, but I've, I've dabbled. And so coming at it from a more technical angle, angle and looking at walking in and saying, all right, well, so like what, what, what data do we have and what can we do with it was basically my, my crash course into Zynga. My first six months to a year was a lot of time doing that. And I really honed in on it after, you know, I'd say the second to third quarter that I was there, I got really involved in exploit detection because Mafia Wars is a PVP game. It was the only competitive game that Zynga had. It was the only game where somebody committing fraud and getting free stuff with stolen credit card numbers or somebody exploiting a, a security flaw in our PHP game, which for those that know web security, PHP is not a hugely secure coding technology to be basing your, your game tech stack on. We had holes in the game and periodically people would figure out what those were and they were able to use them to either level unlimited or gain massive amounts of XP or gain huge amounts of premium currency, which was obviously the most detrimental to us. And so for at least a year on Mafia Wars, I was very, very focused. I would say a third to a half of what I was working on was proactive analysis of the data sets that we saw looking for outliers, looking for people that were in violation of like uh, velocity limits on Mm -hmm. how fast you can level up without putting money into your account. And also reactive. I was um, sort of white glove customer support for our whales, our biggest customers, many of whom were, you know, over a thousand dollars in spend. We're giving customer service priority when they came in with, with calls about their accounts or needs that they had. And some of them were actually able to get a, basically a direct line into the studio. And I was usually the guy on the other end of that phone call. So those, those experiences really helped me to internalize the player perspective, right? When I'm, when, when somebody who spent over a thousand dollars in your game calls you up and says, Hey, I got a problem. Here's what it is. And your job is to help solve that problem. You know, I'm looking for, I'm looking for opportunities to not solve this problem once, but to solve this problem for everybody all the time. And that turned into a lot of this sort of backend cheat detection stuff that we were running that was looking at, at velocities of a bunch of different metrics. Um, mostly we were looking for people that were attacking too fast because it indicated that they were scripting to use, to, to hit the attack button over and over again. And it could basically, because of our, our tech stack, you could lock somebody else out of their game if you overwhelmed him. It was essentially like a, a DDoS in miniature mm-hmm. uh, in Mafia Wars. And that turned into a weapon. And it was definitely against the, the, the rules of the game at that point. But it gave me the first opportunity at Zynga to, to find that thing that like resonated with me that I could chase after proactively that my boss didn't really know was a problem until, you know, I, and I'll never forget the, the day that I took him a data set where I was like, uh, so listen, we got like 40 or 50 accounts that just in the last month have walked out the back door with like 
$30 million worth of premium currency. And he was like, holy shit, what? And it was like, it was the first that anyone had looked. It was the first time that we'd ever seen anything like it. And through that investigation, we flagged these accounts and we started getting like deeper telemetry. We basically... And it's not just the lost potential sales. It's also the damage that it's doing to all the players who do spend money. Exactly. That or was who fact, just play without yes, spending money, but are yes. playing and following the rules. Yes. That was how I found out. I found out because one of our whales called me and was like, listen, I just got beat by this account. And there are 15 accounts in this game that can beat me. And I know every one of them because I know how much they've spent on the game in order to be able to be that powerful. It's more than me. And the whales, the highest level players in the game, all knew each other because it's a small world when you're talking about people that'll put a thousand plus dollars into a game that they're playing. And so I had uh, one of our whales escalated to me and said, check out this account for me. Just, you know, do a little digging on it and see if it's legit. If it's legit, I'm cool. Don't worry about it. And so I did, you know, we loaded up the account in the account tool and, and it smelled fishy from minute one. And it took more investigation to figure out what was going on there than typically. And that was just a further indication that, you know, there was nefariousness going on. And it turned into a substantive investigation. It really wasn't until I put that number on my boss's desk that he was like, oh, let me give you some engineering resources to actually try and go fix this problem in a more permanent way. Because once, you know, that was the rule at Zynga. Once you can put a dollar value against something, you can get resourced. You can get prioritized in, in building a solution because there's a dollar value next to it. And that, that process is actually probably the thing. It's a great transition. It's probably the thing that I took, the, took away from my, my time at Zynga the most strongly was adherence to the idea that, you know, hypothesis, test, iterate is the, the approach to making a game better. Go in with an open mind. Use your, your intuition and your history to generate hypotheses to say, all right, well, given what I see in front of me, what do I think will work? But once you, once you spec those out, go through the exercise of actually generated estimated outcomes. Really sit down with the numbers, say, okay, well, this feature is likely to affect X percentage of my user base. And I believe in that because I shipped a previous feature that was very much like it. So you have a comp in your head to something that's already happened, something that you believe in and say, all right, well, so this new thing is going to be a lot like this old thing looked. Right. And that exercise, as long as you have that historical data, as well, long as you that's have That's exactly comps, what I was going to ask. I think it's very easy to do that when you have those comps. But when you're creating something new or you haven't done, gone through, there's not another PM yep. that's gone through that process yep. before. Well, if you don't have another PM that's gone through the process before, that's way harder. I mean, figuring any of this stuff out, like everybody's standing on the shoulders of people that came before. Product management in games was born out of product management in e-commerce. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the tool set is very, very similar. You're looking at funnels every single time in a lot of different ways. You want to understand like how many players got to step one, how many players went from step one to step two, how many players went from step two to step three. But the funnels, they point at different things. Good. Sometimes you have a, a user funnel that, that indicates that they're going to come back another day, right? Like responding to a notification or a push on an iOS device or on a mobile device is a huge indicator of, of somebody's likelihood of retaining the fact that they're interacting with your, your notification channel. Because a lot of people don't. They, they'll refuse to turn notifs on. And that's a powerful channel, that reminder mechanic that comes up that says, hey, this game is waiting for you. You want to come back and give it a whirl again? Because oftentimes people do have a good time, but they're busy. You know, we all understand this. You, you get sort of addicted to your email and Facebook knows how to keep your attention because that's what those channels are designed to do. And games have largely borrowed from a lot of those same tools. So the short version of my experience at Zynga without going into a ton of details about all the things that I did when I was there. Yeah, I came in as a product manager. I had mm-hmm. background in, in games. I played a lot of games. I had worked in consulting, which was a skill set that they were interested in. And that's kind of what got me in the door. And once I got there, 
where I came in as a product manager and the role of product manager was typically to take one area of the game, engagement and, and retention, growth or revenue and be assigned to one of those three areas. And over the time that I was at Zynga, I worked in all three of them across Mafia Wars. Mafia Wars was the product that I put got put on when I first joined the company. I was on Mafia Wars for a year and a half, almost two years. I did run. It was. And I saw that game go all the way up and all the way down. And that was educational to have seen that experience from the inside. Well, what was the release cadence you guys were doing? We pushed code on average four days a week. Wow. Yes, it was it was high, high pace. What was the team size? Obviously, it at, went up and down. but It did. It went up and down. At, at peak, it was over 70. We had, uh, we had 10, 10 or 11 product managers. We had almost 40 engineers and the rest were art production, sort of the glue functions that keep 40 engineers on Mafia Wars. On Mafia Wars. Unbelievable. It it was. Okay. So, so you were saying how you, you went through kind of all three of those areas. Came in, worked on Mafia Wars for a year and a half, moved through all three areas. The one that I touched the least, frankly, was revenue and monetization, which is funny because later in my career, I ended up doing a lot more of that than anything else. Turns out that's what people want to be good at is making money. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Right? Who'd have thunk it? But I, I was sitting next to everybody that was doing that job in Mafia Wars and I learned from them all of the tricks. And there were there are a lot and they're effective. You know, they're they're tools that I have really continued to use. Flash sales are a perfect example. The you know, the power of a flash sale is very, very real. Mm-hmm. Also, the negative impact of running a flash sale, the 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 economic hangover that you put your game into sure. by virtue of making the decision to, you know basically pull money forward is, is what a flash sale is doing for you. Right. So, so for people who might not be listening, who, who might be listening, but might not understand what you, what you're referring to as a hangover, you're talking about when you put your currency on sale, the revenue comes in, but now your players have all this unspent currency. So your revenue is going to dip afterwards. That's right. Well, until they That's clear right. that currency out. If you have, you have a normal game where players give you cash for gold and then they take the gold in that game and they spend gold on swords and dragons and ships and armies and whatever there, there are two sides there are two transactions that have to take place there and when you put a flash sale on that first transaction that says we're going to let you get gold more cheaply people build up a huge wallet balance of of the amount of gold that they have sitting in their accounts mm-hmm. and it isn't until they spend through that that they'll start paying money again so for the, the business guys that are that are sitting there every single day watching the revenue reports come in there's on the day of the sale, you generate a lot of revenue. I mean, Mafia Wars, I'm going to give you a round number that's not real because it's not a great idea to ever talk about real numbers. But if you're making $100,000 a day and you turn on flash sales all day, we would typically go to 400, 500% of our baseline mm-hmm. for the days that we ran sales. But then we would have two weeks of running at 40 to 60% of our baseline. So we had to do a lot of analysis to, to make sure that we were in fact positive. Coming out ahead. Yeah, yeah, coming out ahead on those decisions. Now, what I, what I teach clients is is that they should plan for that sell-through, have a plan for that sell-through as well. So after the flash sale, what are you going to do to exactly. drain those wallets of all your exactly. players? And that was actually, that was the thing that we discovered probably halfway through my time there was that our, our ability to manage the hangover was actually the thing that made us more able to run sales. Mm-hmm. As as the game got older in the life cycle and it was sort of distilled down to mostly paying players, but a smaller number of them, we were left increasingly looking for ways to manage the revenue on the game because we had pressure from, you know, corporate to to help us with making the numbers for the overall company for a given quarter and the run up to an IPO. 
and all of that sort of financial pressure that comes from being a public company mm. started to become part of our our monthly planning to say, okay, well, you know, Farmville is, is well, Farm's not a good example in that they never fell short, but you know, the Frontierville team is going to fall short this year. So can you make up some numbers? We didn't fall short. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Farmville team was the team that they made, Farm made more money, still makes more money for, for Zynga, I think, than anything else they have there. Of course. Um, but Mafia Wars at, at, in its day was the, the second highest grossing game in the company and nobody else was close. Those two franchises really led the earliest growth of, of Zynga. And Mafia Wars was doing it with a combination of economy management and flash sales that was new as far as I had seen at that point, you know, anywhere in the gaming ecosystem. Yeah, Zynga was not was not reluctant to experiment with monetization mechanics. I mean, we, we directly sold power. We directly sold power in a game where your ability to compete with another player is is determined literally by a single click. Like if I am a more powerful account than your account in Mafia Wars and I go to your page and I click on you, I beat you. And that's it. You cannot beat me because I have spent more money or played more time on my account. So a deterministic game, and that that at the time, especially six, seven years ago, that user experience was absolutely counter to any kind of game that a real gamer wanted to play. Like I think that's true today as well. It it's still it is not as true because microtransactions have in the last six years become much more ubiquitous. You see them in AAA titles. You see them in console games. Yeah, but we're better at doing them without going full pay to win. Absolutely. And well, now there's nuance. Now there's nuance around how do we monetize in a pay to in a in a completely um, in a microtransaction environment that is entirely entirely aesthetic. So, for example, one of the games that we have at Daybreak is King of the Kill, and there is nothing that you can purchase in that game that alters the the physics or the likelihood of getting a shot, or the amount of damage that you're taking. Yeah. Nothing that changes the competitive balance of that game. It's entirely about appearance and, and you know, the sort of the peacocking game of like, oh, look, I have a crazy unicorn mask on and a, and a glowing rifle. But it doesn't play, change the gameplay at all. Mm-hmm. But there are other games that I would argue people say are not pay to win. League of Legends, League of Legends. Is, a great, is a great... I knew it's you coming, were going to say right? it. I, I tell people the same thing. It, gets, it has such a, yes. a, a reputation yes. for, for... League is fair play. League is total... But if you look at the, the like, look at the ban rates on champions, look at the ban rates on champions over time, and you'll see that new champions are permabanned They're, because they, they come into the game overpowered. They come into the game overpowered and easier to succeed with. Now, that's partly because it's harder to balance without live user data. I and mean, you have to release a champion and get a lot of games to be played and look at a lot of analytics to say, oh, this champion is in fact overpowered. But it's also because it makes them money. Because when they release an unbalanced champion, everybody rushes to buy it because the fact is it feels good to win. And people want to, if they could pay a little bit of money to get the winning experience, a lot of people will. And if they pay a little bit of money for something that feels good only for a little while and then gets rebalanced and they move on to something else, that still kind of feels okay. But there is a definite pay to win echo in in the League of Legends ecosystem. It's not nearly as direct as World of Tanks or Crossfire where, you know, these games are basically, you can come in and pay $5 for a golden bullet and it kills people in one shot instead of in two. Right. And that is really a direct and aggressive pay-to-win monetization. But both of those games are also making huge, huge amounts of money. Right, and, and even that is actually a step back from what you're describing in Mafia Wars, because yes. you can have the golden bullet, but if you can't, if you don't hit me... That's right, that's right. 
That's absolutely true. So, okay, so you you have this experience on Mafia Wars, and uh, sounds like it was an incredible learning journey for you. And uh, and I know that you then applied that uh, in a new way. So the the Mafia Wars learning transitioned still inside of Zynga into a role that really did set me up for the rest of my career, which was joining the, the third party publishing team. Uh, as so, as the the only product manager on the third party publishing team, my job became working with external studios that we had signed contracts with to help them improve the performance of their games. We structured our contracts in such a way, it means pretty similar to most publishing arrangements. We structured our contracts to be, basically, we would give you marketing and help you grow your game in exchange for 30% of your revenue. Zynga at the time had a 200 or 200. There, was, there wasn't any sort of metrics, tiered metrics? There were, actually. So the the setup was, you know, Zynga had 200 million, 350 million MAU. There were a lot of users in the Zynga network. And we basically told our third-party clients, if you can maintain certain retention targets, we will drive traffic into your game. We'll, we'll set you up at a baseline, a low level of traffic into your game to always keep, you know, 500 or 1,000 new players coming in so that we can be looking at your numbers. Almost like a soft launch. Almost like, very much like a soft launch. This was, we took the soft launch approach that Zynga had used for its own uh, web titles and its mobile titles and tried to basically lay that down as the, the, the launch methodology that we were advising our third-party partners to use. Now, they, it was up to them. They had to listen to us or not. Most of them were very, very grateful to be getting advice from, from inside the company that had invented, frankly, a lot of these, you know, the, the sort of approaches, the, the PM methodology that was being really just rapidly exported from the, the big three <laughs> in mm-hmm. San Francisco. We started signing deals with a lot of smaller indie developers, you know, 10-person, 15-person, 30-person shops that had made something interesting at a time that everybody thought, oh, well, I can make a little web game and, you know, see if it turns into money and let's let's see what this does for us. It was really, it was an absolute education. The, there were there were so many problems. <laughs> like you'd walk in the door and say, oh man, I didn't realize how far behind a lot of these other organizations were. The, the biggest, the absolute biggest failures were, and over and over and over again, we saw this, were organizations that had, they'd simply not invested in analytics. Mm-hmm. They had no metrics. They did not have any numbers. They didn't know what their products were doing. Even when they had gotten them to launch, they were reliant on Facebook analytics to give them just the most basic numbers. There's something I've seen quite a few times where a company and even some big companies, they think they have analytics. Yes. And all you do is you just like, all right, cool. Well, send me the numbers. And those numbers never come. Yes. Yes. Like so many things in, in game development, it's more complicated than it sounds. In order to actually have actionable data coming back to you, you have to have accurate telemetry in place first. You have to have an engineer who has sat there and said, oh, this is an event that I care about. And they created some telemetry that goes into your database. You've got this whole data pipeline that has to be in place. You've got to get engineering in the client. You've got to get data to transmit properly to your backend. You've got data that has to be organized into the database properly. And then somebody that knows how to write the SQL to pull that data out in a way that makes sense has to pull it out into some kind of tool that will visualize it and turn it into a report. And those four things are actually not trivial skills to hire for, and they're not trivial things to explain to somebody that doesn't understand them. 
And that was my first learning. So you walk into these companies and you try to say, okay, this is going to be really important for you. You guys have to understand what the retention is of your new players. If you can't calculate your retention, you're not really going to be able to estimate what this product is going to look like if you go out and pay a shitload of money for marketing. Because even in the earliest days, that was where your money went. You'd spend half of your money doing development and then get to the point where you're like, okay, I'm ready to launch. How do I get users here? And as soon as you start investigating that, the answer is you pay somewhere between 50 cents and $3 per person. And we'll get them to you. But that's a large chunk of money for an indie studio that's bootstrapped themselves into having something that's ready for launch. And suddenly they realize, oh, man, I need to get traffic into my game. And that was why the Zynga Publishing Program was attractive to people, because that's what we were offering. But what they didn't recognize is that the retention rates that we were that we were setting were based on our own internal comps. I knew what it took to launch a successful game, because Zynga had launched both successful and unsuccessful games, and I'd seen the numbers for all of them. And so looking at, you know, a day one retention number tells me 50 plus percent of what I, I need to know to evaluate the prospects of any given game on any platform. And would you say that that holds to this day? To this day. Right, let me let me throw some day day one numbers at you. Are you ready? <laughs> ready. All right. Uh, 20%. Oh, bummer. Get out. 30%. Maybe workable. Depends on the state of the game. Like a low quality game, you're like, wow, there are like obvious holes in this, but still got 30% day one. I would I would put one coat of paint on it. One what? One coat of paint. One coat so of paint. I, I, right. I would go through one time and I'd say, all right, let's do... That's flows. That's, that's UX. Let's do... Let's look at the whole new user onboarding experience. Let's look at the early game tuning and let's decide what the biggest, the low-hanging fruit are in those two areas of the game. And let's make those fixes and see what retention goes to. 30%, I wouldn't launch with it. You wouldn't get out a soft launch for me with a 30% D1. Sure, 40%. That's that's where you're starting to, to look like you might end up with a product that'll go. Um, it's at the low end of that range. There's also some nuance now that we get into whether or not you're a free-to-play game or whether or not you have a paid upfront. If you're seeing 40% on something with a paid download, I'd be really worried still. If you're seeing 40% D1 on a, on a massive scale, like a web scale social game, that's that's where I, that's definitely, that's the floor of me being like, okay, this is something that I'm going to invest in. Mm-hmm. I would put more than one iteration cycle into improving that first time user experience, improving the tuning and improving your marketing. You know, your marketing flows also impact your messaging flows and marketing flows impact the likelihood of players to return which turns into those early retention values. But to going from 40%... You're, you're saying lining up sort of conceptually the message and the marketing to the product that they're going into, or are you saying looking at the attribution of the marketing to see which channels are giving you the it's, better numbers? It's, I mean, it's sort of all of the above. Actually, the biggest thing in the marketing that I'm looking at is what's the timing? So if you're if you've onboarded and we have, you know, you've granted us email access, are we sending you a one day email reminder? Are we sending you a seven day email reminder? What's the cadence at which we're sending you emails? We're activating the channels we have available to try and bring you back to the game. And the, the greater the number of channels you have available to reach a player, the easier it is for you to actually get them to come back. Whether they come back on day one or day four or day seven, if you get them to come back in that first week, you, you've radically increased the chances they're going to come back in the second week. And every game that I've ever worked on tends to have a weekly cadence to it. You know, the, the day of the week matters. Social and mobile games are played more, you know, in, in office hours, basically. People want three to five minute sessions that they can they can get while going to the bathroom in the middle of a workday. Um, if you look at other games with longer session lengths, your League of Legends, your PC games of the world, they tend to spike to their highest DAU on weekends. Mm-hmm. But the cadence is still, it's still there, right? It's shifted one way or the other. But you always see this weekly pattern of, you know, the two days on the weekend or, or the Tuesday, Wednesday, midweek are kind of the peak 
user login days. And so getting people so onto the that biorhythms of that. That's product. right. It's, I call it breathing. It's, it's the, it's the, of your game is that weekly cycle of, can you get players who played last week to come back this week? And if you can generally keep people playing once a week, that's a, that's the minimum level of engagement that that is likely to lead to a player being sticky for the, their lifetime. And engagement turns into monetization. If you have good monetization flows and they pop up at opportunities that players recognize the value in, all you have to do is get them to keep coming back. And they will eventually see those monetization flows enough times that they'll either engage with them or they were or they weren't likely to. Or they're going to do something else valuable for your game, like bring in another user or tell or, somebody. Or, or get beat by somebody that did use a monetization flow. There you go. And you can't discount the fact that the, the whales need somebody to win against. And if somebody's paying you money to win, it helps you to have non-paying players in that ecosystem that also feel enough like they are winners that they want to stick around as well. Competition. That's right. That's right. Getting the telemetry was one of the major uh, areas where you saw these companies kind of stumble. Yes. Anything else that you kind of were repeatedly seeing? The, the, their approach to monetization, we called it, we called it bolting on monetization. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of companies that would have a, a great design approach to a new hybrid game idea that was a mix between two mechanics or to a, a just a reskin of a, of a current game idea in a new, you know, an Invest Express game with a new theme associated with it. But they would inevitably get to the point where they were saying, okay, we're three months away from launch. How do we monetize this? And it's just so backwards at that point. You're at the point where you've baked the entire design of your game and now you're asking for opportunities that fit that design to turn the game into money. And not everything is is just is that easy to align. So the, the process of thinking about, for me, of thinking about how you want to manage the economy of a game starts from really understanding the session characteristics of the game that you're offering to players. Is it going to be something that they're regularly logging in but only playing for five minutes at? Is it something that they're going to be logging in for one three-hour mammoth session once a week? Is it somewhere in between, right? There's a, there's a spectrum. So how are, how are players experiencing the product is one piece of it. And the other piece is, it goes to these things we were talking about before. What is the competitive nature of the game? If you're, if you're in a game where you have competitive balance concerns and the, the tuning and the awarding of loot and the progression status that players are going through affects the players they're fighting against then your game balance becomes hugely, hugely critical. And you have to make a decision at that point about, frankly, you have to make a pay-to-win decision when you're still in design. You have to sit down with your whole design team and say, is this a core tenant of the product that we're building or not? And if it is, and you decide that pay-to-win is something that you absolutely want to completely avoid, then you have to look at what your cosmetics, your cosmetic options are. But but, but it's, there is, like you said, there is this nuanced space in between where you're, you're, you're paying to, say, uh, gain a, an advantage in time that somebody else could, could still get there yes um you know uh we used to call it slow boating yeah having having the slow boat option for for everybody so everyone can still have that same advantage but it just might take someone else longer yes that works in games where your design space is constrained in a way that is well is is constrained in the sense that there's like a maximum power you can achieve max level and a person that gets to max level faster than me by monetizing isn't necessarily having a game experience that's better than mine because i can still get to max level so i will be competitive eventually and uh, the psychology of a player in the chase mode is to is to chase that max level or that max power and then it will be about skill again but you have to have that skill space waiting at the end 
players will say, oh, it's okay that I didn't get there as fast as somebody else, as long as by the end, it's still it's still an even playing field. But it's, al- it's also like a segmentation issue, right? Because if you're able to segment the users within those different kind of spaces. Oh, yeah. No, so like matchmaking, right, becomes more and more and more important yeah. when you're when you're building and designing games that are competitive games where you want to have any amount of pay for power and pay for advancement turns into pay for power over the short term, but flattens out, you know, it's sort of an asymptotic right. Anyone line. Who's played Clash Royale knows, knows what you're talking yes. about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but <laughs> anybody that all too fast, frankly, yeah. <laughs> but anybody who's played Clash Royale also knows the experience of like getting to that, getting to the line, you know, between, mm-hmm. between two or two ranks and realizing that everybody in the rank above you has more stuff than you. Now, at a certain point, like when they launch that game, there's kind of a land race. You know, your, your early monetizing players are going to sprint ahead of everybody else. And there is value to being to literally just being ahead because it changes your loot table to be ahead of people you're playing against in that game. And I actually think that their monetization suffered a little bit for it. Like they went out like gangbusters. And don't misunderstand me. Clash Royale is a really, 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 really well built yeah. game. And it seems like they fixed a lot of the issues as well. Yes. But even they, I mean, even Super cell and this is a great example who are best in class at iteration and testing you know they're extremely aggressive about killing products before they ever see the light of day because they only launch stuff that's good and even they launched with tuning and and their their sort of competitive bucketing a little off in mm-hmm. you know, the first six months of that game people really noticed it everybody i knew who was a non-payer was stuck at exactly the same place yep, yep and you know that that can hurt your ecosystem you know going back to the point earlier when you have you know your whales are paying money to try and beat each other but they need to have somebody that they always win against in order to feel like their money is getting put to good use because that's so much of the psychology of of how to make monetization land is when players give you it's money about value it's about showing right. the value and it's about sh- it's about the show more than it is about that like players have to feel like immediately after they give you money they have to feel better than they did before they gave you the money and that can look a lot of different ways they can look better they can literally just be like i get to spend 40 minutes running around in the middle of town showing off my new costume and having people go wow those shades look really cool or it can be the really satisfying experience of popping around mm-hmm. a corner and hitting somebody with the instigive rocket and watching their guts explode. This actually reminds me of, of something where I, another kind of mistake on the other end that I've seen, although not as often as people failing to design for monetization, but just putting monetization everywhere. Just like, yeah, it's yeah. just everything in the, the game. The shotgun is approach. Sale. Yeah. And that, that you end up right there. You end up with a game where no matter what you buy, you just, you're just being asked to buy the next thing and you feel bad about well, it. And oftentimes you, you buy the wrong thing first. You buy the weakest thing and you don't get the pop. Mm-hmm. You don't get the experience of, hey, I bought something that felt meaningful to me. You get the experience of, hey, I bought something and I may or may not have gotten a pop-up that said thank you, but I don't know what to do with this thing and I don't feel like it's helping me. And that is a huge problem. If that's your first monetization opportunity for somebody, you're not going to get them back. How do you go about on the early phase of, of design getting in some of the monetization levers? So I'm, I'm looking at so like I said before, I'm looking at the session criteria to try to understand how players are going to be interacting with it, because that's telling me 
or helping to inform the decision about where to put the put the first pinch. How far into the game experience are we going to go before you present to the player an opportunity to to give you money? And that so the pinch really refers to invest express style progression games where you drop in and you're basically just playing a single player game in your first session and you you go through a lot of mechanics of like teaching you how to put a building down and teaching you how to spend some money. But eventually at the end of that experience, you're left with some aspirational goal. It's like, oh, the next really powerful unit in the game, you're 80% of the way there. And that was kind of, that was the number at Zynga. We, we always wanted to leave somebody at the end of their first session between 70 and 90% of the way to their next goal mm-hmm. and to give them clarity about how long it would take them to reach that, to finish that last 20%. Because typically your Zynga game is a timer game, right? You, you've just built the first three structures in your farm. You're waiting to collect your next round of resources to sell for coins to then build the next round of structures for your farm. So you're in that state where you have something clear that that you need to do next, but you don't have the resources to do it. And that's how we like to leave people at the end of their first session, because that's the pinch. That's the opportunity where they go, oh, I'm out of energy. I can't do anything else unless. So you, you, the choice literally is let me log out and wait for the timers to catch up so that I can come back and keep playing the game for free. Or if I give you a dollar, I can keep going right now. And if you get people into the psychology, both of, the of those are pretty good outcomes. Yeah, both of those. I mean, if they come back, they're they're great outcomes. Given the choice, to be totally clear about it, if I'm offered all my players come back of tomorrow, course, of course. or ten percent of my players give me money today, I'm taking all the players coming back. Yeah. every single day of the week. The eighty percent rule applies just as well to retention as what is what I'm trying to point out. Because if I have something that I'm aspiring to, it gives me a reason to to return as long as I'm yes. I bought into the goal. Exactly. That the carrot is the same for retention as it is for monetization. You're asking somebody to monetize exactly in that moment, or you're asking somebody to retain to get that thing at a later moment. But in both cases, if the offer that you're putting in front of them, if the pinch is compelling, the thing that's waiting on the other side of that glass jar is a thing that those players want. That's the circumstance that you want to put people in coming off of that first time user experience. Let's talk a little bit about the economy, how you turn these mechanics once we have them in place for a particular game. How do we build out an economy that's going to deliver that that 80% pinch and, and kind of just be, you know, deliver on balance, deliver on having the right content to uh, last long enough for players to retain? The short answer is you're going to test your way to it. That That is at the, at the highest level. The answer for me is that there isn't a prescriptive answer. There isn't a one size fits all. This is the right game economy for everybody to launch with. So my process really is exactly that. It's a process. It starts with understanding the mechanics and looking at who else is using similar mechanics and how they're monetizing to say, all right, let's get some comps. Let's look at games that are out there in the ecosystem that are doing well. Let's look at how they're making their money. And let's look at the balance concerns that are around the decisions of how they make their money. Because those two things are always kind of in opposition to each other. How are you balancing the game and how are you making money on the game? So what you're saying is it's all about telemetry. And when you don't have the telemetry, you get as much as you can from other other apps in the space, if there are. Any. Absolutely. That's the, that's the first step to me to doing any estimate. So if I'm doing a high level estimate on a new product launch, I don't have any internal data that tells me what that thing is going to do. But I'll go out and look at 
products that have similar mechanic sets. So if I know, like Warframe is a great example. Warframe is a game that has really been on kind of a slow burn. You know, they're four years old now. They didn't make nearly the money in their first two years that they're making these days. They have iterated themselves slowly into a monetization mechanic. It's basically the release of new frames. It's very similar to the release of a new champion in League of Legends. It's essentially a side grade. You're not changing your power at all. You're giving people the opportunity to have a slightly different play style based on the equipment that they're choosing to take into the game. And so, you know, that's one set of mechanics that I can look at and say, all right, well, they're doing extremely well with that particular set of mechanics. Does this product that we're describing, you know, is it is it coming from a particular IP? Are we trying to match an IP to a set of game mechanics? We have a set of game mechanics we know we want. So I'm always evaluating these design criteria because typically those exist first. Game companies almost always start with a group of people that say, hey, man, wouldn't it be great to make a space opera? And you're like, <laughs> okay, space opera. Well, let me just stop and think about this. All right, how are we going to make money on a space opera? It's like, are we going to sell music? We're going to sell music? <laughs> are we going to sell costumes? Are we going to make money on ads from people who come in to watch the music? And we're going to make the music making free for talented people who want to do it? The space opera opera. Space opera opera. It's an Eve opera. We can, we can sell the music live to Eve ships to run through the battlegrounds. And bl- I can see Eve actually launching that as a separate You know, separate I, feel like, I feel like anything goes in Eve. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, I'm only sad that five years ago when I had a friend of mine who first started playing, he was like, dude, you should make an account and just log in and set your ship to train and then let it lapse because it's passive accumulation of experience. You just have to start a character. It's like Bitcoin five years ago, right? I should have started a character. <laughs> I did start a character. I should log in. You should in. go back. Yeah, you got I mean, gold. Gold is waiting for you. I actually, I'm pretty sure they they make it like it fills and then you have to oh, switch same. it over. But I, I, I could be wrong. I'm not, worth, I'm not a youth player, I got to say. It was it was a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, I heard that. But it was cool. I mean, I I, I loved how free it was and, and how, uh, how, how much people could just mess with each other. You know, I, yeah. I definitely miss that yeah. kind of gameplay. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, so one of the two products that we have at Daybreak that is um, very open world like that. So we launched a game called H1Z1 that was split into two different titles. One is an open world zombie survival game called Just Survive. And the other is a is a King of the Hill variant of that game called King of the Kill. That is basically a single elimination tournament, 150 players on a giant map. Everybody tries to kill each other until only one person is left. Very realistic body sim. You know, two people get into a gunfight and 20 seconds later, somebody's dead. Like that's that's pretty much how it goes every time you run into another human. It doesn't last very long. Um, and the survival sim is is very similar. But one of the things that makes these games so compelling is is the you can meet people out in the world and, and mess with them. Your voice comms are on. You're kind of out running around in a very undefined open world experience. Yeah, if you want to be super stealthy and sneak up on somebody and say boo right before you shoot them in the head, you can. <laughs> And there's something compelling about the ability to have the self-expression that comes from that. Uh, these also these games, the emotions that you yes. can, that you can yes. have as a user is, yes. is really cool. Well, and and it, people who really are really good at games often like to troll people who are not as good at games because it adds a little bit of variety to their game experience when otherwise they just run around killing people all the time. King of the Kill is actually very interesting in that respect because. So much of the outcome of a given game is is about the randomization of where loot in, spawns in the level and where you spawn in the level. And that actually adds just a lot of variance to the way that games tend to end. And it makes it, I think, a little bit more of a compelling experience because it isn't really guaranteed. Like the best player, you know, it's like parody in the NFL, right? The best team doesn't always win. And that actually makes it more compelling because you have this any given Sunday sense 
you know, that you really can have somebody in King of the Kill can be a total noob hiding in a closet with a shotgun. Like the whole map, just hiding from people. Well, everybody else runs around killing each other. And if they they spawned in the right place, they can make it all the way to the end of that game. And if they use their ears and the, the second to last person standing walks into their room and comes up to the front of the door, you hear him out there and you're being quiet, quiet as a mouse in the closet. And you put a couple of shotgun blasts to the closet door, you can win. There's a luck factor. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay. So let's, let's imagine that we're, we're creating a game. We're going to make a a zombie free to play zombie killer thing. Okay. So we would create a spreadsheet and start looking at some of the competing titles and writing down all the information that we get in terms of what's the first session length, how much do things cost? What's the value of currency? What are the timers? So two biggest things for me, actually high level, I'm looking at how many installs did they generate? How much Mm -hmm. revenue did they generate? Mm -hmm. I'm I'm building a business case. So I want to know what are the competitors? are out there were successful competitors what are the successful competitors exactly and sometimes you see a competitor that generated a huge amount of installs but didn't generate a lot of revenue and that can give you an indication that there's an appetite people want to play that style of game now on pc where do you go for that i mean where does that data come from it's a challenge um steam spy is one of the best places to go steam spy is actually a, a pretty awesome resource they have so steam has a public api and six or nine months ago maybe a year now steam spy started sampling a three percent sample rate of the public steam api that basically will allow you to to calculate the total number of owners of any given product on the steam platform so you don't get external information so warframe for example warframe they do their distribution on steam you can you can get a steam client but they also do distribution via their own portal right you're not going to know what's happening you're not going to know their portal numbers by looking at steam spy but but so steam spy is asking some small percentage of the users and extrapolate they're not actually actually asking users they're they every single day they're querying the this this valve's public api valve just provides that information valve is providing a public api that will give you values for like the last two weeks and Steam Spy just updates that data every day and then has kind of an aggregated data set. It's not awesome. Uh, one of the things I would love to be able to get from Steam Spy is actually the history. And what I can really just get is what does this look like a snapshot of the last two weeks? Because and is that data just free? Do they give that away or do they sell th- it? That's, that's just free. Um, they, they have some... Uh, some some paid data acquisition there, but we've never really taken advantage of it. Uh, I've been lucky in the sense that everywhere that I've ever worked, for, from a full time standpoint, has had access to to you know data internal data for our own products. That's the place that you start with with comps. You know, if you have yeah. your own data, yeah. you know is good. That's where you start. I'm, just, I'm trying to I'm trying to give a framework that our listeners could yep. use. You know, they're probably yep. working on a smaller product, although maybe not, and they might not have been through this exercise before. So, they may not have their own data yet. Yes, and it, I'm thinking, you know, hey. They they might put together a spreadsheet like this. So that's the second step, right? So the, the first one really is like, what did it generate for installs? Because that more than anything else tells you the space that you're, the, 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 like the maximum outcome of the space that you're in. You aren't necessarily going to replicate the number of downloads that Kim Kardashian's fashion game got. And in fact, that, that story is a great story, right? That's a reskin of a game that, uh, that Glue had already done. But they, they put Kim's name on it and she did some Twitter marketing and it radically changed the number of installs they were able to get. That's then you get a you get a sensitivity range there, right? You get a, a variance that says, all right, so at the low end with no brand, no IP behind this, just a normal amount of marketing, we have, you know, the glue fashion game. And at the high end with a huge amount of brand and promotion that outperforms, we have the Kim Kardashian fashion game. 
But now you can take those numbers and say, all right, I can I take these projected install values and I, I plot them against retention rates that I'm estimating. And I can take the retention rates from a different product and say, all right, I know the internal retention rates from when we launched PlanetSide and I know that we're making a zombie-based shooter in an open world. And I have another open world shooter to base those numbers on. So I'll pull those retention values and say, okay, these are the retention values I'm going to estimate. So, so, you're, so you're sort of creating like a, like a Frankenstein model. That's right. I'm creating a Frankenstein growth model. I want to know what the potential is for this product. And then I'm taking really high, medium, and low scenarios. I'm saying, like, if we really knock it out of the park, what's the high end of this, of this range on retention? What's the high end of this range on installs? If we really fail and miss our targets, we don't get any marketing support. How, how do we take the, the experience? Uh, you know, what's it going to look like at that low end? And then that's your range, right? You can go, you can go to the money guys at the top of every company that have, you know, your, whether it's your investors in, in your, your small game company or whether it's the, the VC private equity company in your, in your medium sized game company or whether it's the president CEO of your public gaming company. There's always a story where you have to walk into somebody's office with a set of numbers that says, I need to justify this decision that we're about to make. Give me, give me a year to put this thing together. Right. Give me, give me, give me a year. This is what it could be. This is a, it's an intelligent bet. It's going to cost us a million dollars to make this game. You know, the, the maximum payback on it is 20 million. We think the realistic scenario is five. You're still got a great ROI. Let's, let's put the money against it. Okay. I love this. Let's, let's keep going. So let's say you put all that together, you make your case, they say yes. You know, you have a basic game design, but how do you go through that same process for the actual, the model, the, the timers, the currency? Yep. The- so the, the next exercise for me is, is actually plotting out the, the beats of the new player experience. What is the timeline of a, of a new player that's being onboarded? Particularly, I'm paying attention to what we call power spikes. Power spikes can apply to things that are not necessarily about player power, but they're basically the moments of joy, they're the win moments, they're the experiences that players will be driven to to seek. They're, they're sort of the chase elements that you're putting in. And these vary based on what kind of a game mechanic that you have. But looking at the, the timeline of what the average player is going to look like when they come into that game experience to, and then this goes back to the thing about session length and what is the, what is the expected UX of these other games that you're looking at. So in a mobile experience, you know it's got to be quick. You know people are going to give you three to ten minutes in that first session. If you can get them to play for thirty, you probably hook them. So you need that power spike. You need that first experience of getting something that feels meaningful to a player to come fairly quickly. Uh, you may or may not want to put monetization into that experience early on. That's oftentimes something that we test to say, like, does monetization, early monetization flow turn people off? It's a little counterintuitive sometimes, but there's a strong argument to be made on most of the products I've ever worked on that early monetization can only help you. Even if you're very aggressive and you turn some players off, you'll capture some people on the first day that you probably would never have seen again. And just by virtue of them giving you money on the first day, increase the likelihood that they're coming back because they gave you money. Right. And they're like, oh, I put money into that game. I should go check on it again and make sure that I don't waste this value. There's a little bit of a like sunk cost uh, experience that's happening for players in that circumstance. So I, I've seen a lot of companies really avoid being aggressive on early monetization. And I make the argument over and over and over again that even high-performing games, 50% of your players are never going to be seen after that first test day. It. It's just so, such an easy exactly. thing to test. Exactly. So test it. And if you get any amount of money from those the half of your players that were never coming back anyway, that that is all upside. And you're not hurting anybody else who was going to stay anyway by getting some early uh, Yeah, When early you test results. it, you know, follow the cohort, see right. what happens. Right, right. See, see what it does to your retention. 
hypertension rates to make sure you're not hurting yourself. But otherwise, it's probably going to be positive on monetization. Let's take this scenario a little bit further. So we've gone to the managers. We've gotten approval to make the thing. We've kind of put together some monetization mechanics. We've built the beginnings of a model or at least kind of plotted out the experience. And later we can build a model around some of that stuff. Now we've got the thing in software. Gordon's looking at this and it's 35% day one. What is what is Gordon looking at now? So now I'm looking for two things. 35% day one, I'm looking at the, the, the ratio between day one and day seven. I want to see how steep the drop off is. So I, I can actually handle a game that's 35% D1 if it's 20% D7. Sure, yeah. Uh, but it's pretty unlikely, yeah. right? Because the shape of that curve tends to be a fairly similar shape. And if you're, you're, you know, first day retention rate is that low, your seventh day retention rate is probably not going to be super high. But some really kind of core game experiences, some deep PvP games on, on the mobile space actually do have curves that look like that. Their day one is not high because they're sort of an acquired taste. It's yeah. like, you know, hardcore fantasy settings and things. I, I got to think the uh, the Game of War style product Cer- certainly feels like it could have with the uh, way they're they're throwing people into that game well now and the other thing is life cycle matters here too like if your golden cohort your very first large-scale cohort after launch comes in at 35 percent, that's going to hurt you but a lot of games will launch with 40 to 50 percent d1 and you know d7 in the in the high 20s and if your d30 is above 15 percent, you can grow on i mean that. that sounds amazing on mobile that's, right now that's oh i mean yeah that's that's a great that's a great game i'd I, I get on that any day of the week yeah uh what com- what company do you work for <laughs> Um, so looking at those numbers, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the ratio between D1, D7, D30. I, I want to see how steep those things are falling off so that I know where in the timeline to focus. That's also goes, this goes back to mapping out the, the timing of the, the player experience, right? Mm-hmm. When do we expect the power spikes to be? When in the timeline of this player experience, do we expect to hit them with the, you know, the notif- notifications ask, you know, like, do you want to ask players to give you uh, push notification rights on their mobile device on the first play session? Do you wait three to four or five sessions in? What does the test for that look like? Do you do it contextually? Do you do, you do it right. right at the front of the app? Right. My personal preference is contextually. I like to explain why I'm asking for something. And so get them to the point in the game where they're going to want to be notified by something. Have them start a timer. And when they proactively start a timer, put something in front of them that says, hey, do you want us to let you know when this timer is done? And if you don't have that timer, you've got a bigger problem than where to put your notification. That's right. That's right. And and so contextual notifications matter a lot because the ecosystem has gotten so noisy and people are savvy to it. And they don't like to be drowning in, you know, oh, look at me, look at me, look at me kinds of notifications on their phone especially when those notifications are not tied to something really actionable. And so it has to be a pretty high value flow that the timer is on to make a player really want to come back. And you want to be judicious with how much you're abusing that channel because to take it from somebody that worked at Zynga, you can absolutely destroy a marketing channel if you overuse it. Well, you're also, you're kind of asking them to, to delete the app at some point. There. Exactly, exactly. You're, you're inviting a, a churn at that point. So we, we've got to, we're in our hypothetical model now and we're, we're trying to figure out, we're looking at our early retention rates. So I've decided now, I'm looking at day one, day seven, day 30, and I've decided which one is the worst. Basically, which one do I want to try to address? And I approach these things differently, right? So, so trying to address D1. Let me, let me ask you a question yeah. about that. So do you address the one that's worst or do you address the one that's first? 
really depends. Like if, if I, it, it depends on how I feel like the product is, is aligned with other, again, it goes back to like, what are the comps? Am, am I seeing, are, am I competing with products in this particular right. space? If you're, if your D one is low, but you expect it to be low, right. Then you're probably going right. to move on. Well, if I, so if I have, if I have a, a game with exhaustible content, a game like a, like a tower defense game, and there are, there's 15 maps and you, you beat map one and you go to map two and you beat map two and you go to map three. And by the end of map, 15 you're done you've finished the game there's no additional content i know at that point i'm trying to optimize for the early part of that funnel i'm not trying to build for an end game i know that i need to get as much money as possible before people run out of things to do or i need to get as many people as possible to finish the game so that i can ask them for money to buy more game but there are two different approaches based on how we've decided to monetize if we've got microtransactions all through and it's a single player game i'm going to be focused on maximizing the number of people that are in the earliest part of that funnel but if i'm in like a deep mmo where i'm not really getting into monetization flows until the third or fourth or fifth day and i'm mostly relying on like whale behavior from core players that are going to be around for a long time i'm a lot more concerned about the the late funnel retention with with that kind of game mechanic than I am with the early funnel retention. Hmm. But it really does depend to me based on, it depends on the product. Right, right. And have you noticed some of these numbers trending in any direction given all the changes that have been happening on mobile? It's hard for me because I, I haven't been in the mobile space for really the last you know, year and a half or two years, I've been much more deeply on the Steam and PC gaming side. So I don't have this is the kind of everyday access to like reading the numbers as they go by the matrix to, to really be understanding uh, the way the state of the mobile ecosystem. I will say that in the time that I was at Zynga towards the end of my career there, when I was watching those numbers, it was obvious that the mobile ecosystem was becoming much more mature and a lot more competitive Mm -hmm. in the same way that the Facebook ecosystem did, you know, and a maturing industry is more expensive to break into the tech requirements. The user experience requirements are higher, which makes your costs higher. The marketing costs are definitely higher. Your ability to get, uh, to get promotion from the platforms to be, you know, editor's choice or new and noteworthy on the iOS store is worth now in the millions mm-hmm. in terms of the marketing value of the user acquisition that you get from those things. But you're competing with tons of other people. And now a you're huge playing IP. huge IPs. You're playing into the wind on timing. If you try to launch the week after Christmas, you'll never get the new and noteworthy slot in a mobile ecosystem unless you're a AAA publisher because they understand the value of all the new devices come online on Christmas Day. And that week following Christmas is a feeding frenzy for the mobile ecosystem. And the CPIs on ads for user acquisition go through the, through the roof for that yeah. week. And so you're competing with the deepest pockets in the space if you try to launch at a particular time and your mechanics match, a, uh, you know, a Clash Royale style game. You know, you've got to be you got to be really careful about your decisions with how you're going to market. So let me ask you this in the transition that you've made from mobile to kind of PC Steam, if anything really surprised you. Yeah. Yes. The the difference in the acceptability of monetization mechanics the the sensitivity to pay to win is a lot a lot higher on the pc gaming crowd than it is in the mobile crowd and they they also proactively communicate with each other in a way that is just in the audience and the developers no the audience and the audience oh. so in a mobile game it's very fractured there's just not a lot even in a mobile game that has quote-unquote social flows in it they're not nearly like the kinds of social flows that exist in PC games. They're, right. People aren't just voice chatting the people, entire right, time. They're playing right, together. Right, exactly. People are not voice chatting. all. The, they're not streaming all the time and broadcasting the game to massive numbers of other people. Not living uh, on the forums. Not living on the forums. It, 
to some degree that they do in mobile games as much as they do in, in PC games. But competitive games are the, the kinds of things that engender that level of activity from mm-hmm. their players. And I think that, competitive games and, and pay to win also kind exactly. of obviously and, well, that's, and that's why there that's why there's a, there's an anathema like anathema is the wrong word. That's why there's there's some contention there. Those those ideologies really don't play well together. This idea that like I want to be the best in a skill based competitive game, and oh that guy only beat me because he paid to win. So that creates a lot of tension, and the way that that manifests itself, and this was this was really the most stark version of this learning. I I did a small consulting project with a company um, that made a game called Dungeon Defenders, and Dungeon Defenders was a, a little indie, really successful for an indie title on Steam. Uh, they they sold a bunch of units, and it was like a five dollar DLC kind of a game that that they had launched, right? And Dungeon Defenders, they were looking for a bridge product while they were in development on Dungeon Defenders 2. They wanted to create a, a, a new SKU that they could launch. It basically was, we're going to put out a premium price. We're going to, you know, instead of having $5 for all seven of the DLCs that we've ever shipped, for $20, you can get the core game and all the DLCs in one package. But the branding, the marketing that went out on it wasn't wasn't really super tight, uh, wasn't really buttoned up, and the homepage for the new product wasn't super clear. So a lot of the players that went out and bought it literally already owned the base game and all of the DLC. They thought they were buying a sequel, but what they got was the exact same game that they already owned. And so they carpet bombed the Steam store page for this product. And when your Steam reviews drop below 50%, your install rates just drop off a cliff. People sure. stop buying your game. You have much better tools to get out of that circumstance in mobile than you do on steam mobile you can just you can literally just push an update right and wipe your your review score history and start back over kind of sort of yeah kind of sort of but yeah and in steam you can't run away from that that historical review score you can over a long period of time get players to be happier with the experience that they're having but it's really really hard to recover from something that drops below the fold on that that sort of 50 percent positive once you're into mixed or overall negative reviews it really 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 hammers especially for free-to-play games the the user acquisition the number of new players that you're seeing into the game and as it going back to that that example before how you're modeling what the possible performance for your product is Installs is the first number I'm asking for. If you dry up the source of new players coming into a product that you're still trying to optimize and grow, you're in a world of trouble. Right. No. No trickle. No data. No data. Right. Right. No calibration. No. And and the the testing and optimization have to happen in fast enough that players can feel the product improving underneath their feet. So even if you have the best plan possible to say, all right, we're going to do soft launch. We have 15 tests that we're going to run. We're going to pick the best winning variant on all of these. If you dry up all the users that were walking in the front door and you you don't have the ability to run those tests or you need way more time to run them because you have a, such a small user base, you're, you've almost already lost, really, by the time that you get to that state. It, I mean, it's worth going through the exercise because you definitely want to see if you can turn the corner. And there are games. Rocket League is a great example. Uh, Warframe is a great example. There are games, even League of Legends, that, that all these games started out slow. You know, they were not the the huge commercial successes that they are today the day that they launched rocket league was it wasn't even rocket league it was a different game it was like super rocket powered mega cars they they only turned that game into rocket league after they finished the in the whole build of the first game and launched it didn't sell enough units to keep paying everybody's salary in the company the company went back to work for higher stuff 
but they were always kind of looking at the numbers on the original Rocket League. And there was just a core group of dedicated players. They had retention. And so they kept going back to like, well, how could we optimize? How can we iterate? How can we improve this? And that game turned into basically the internal test for Rocket League. And they knew uh, when they, and it was, so it was just polish, just polish that took them from the original idea to what is now, I mean, it's, it's definitely a half a billion dollar franchise. I'm not sure if they've crossed a billion dollars yet, but if they haven't yet, they probably will. Sure. Yeah. That's a great segue for me to ask you a question that I just love. It's a topic that I like talking about. And I think you're very well qualified to, to speak to, which is free to play on console. Yeah. Um, obviously it's here, but it hasn't, it hasn't grown that big yet. It doesn't seem like an opportunity. A lot of, a lot of people are taking advantage of. What do you think of that opportunity? I think it's, it's constrained to some degree by the platforms, uh, the the discoverability. You know, mobile is still way ahead uh, on in terms of the, the quality of the platforms. I have I have beef with Steam in in the PC space as a platform, and I have beef with Microsoft and Sony on in the console space in terms of the the ability to to get good data back from them about your users and what your users are doing, and and that is and and about discoverability and about their management of their marketplaces. And those two things are are challenging when your platform is not giving you good access to data and you don't have good ability to control or influence how you're surfaced and how you show up in their in their store. And and why do you think that's the case on on these platforms? Are they sandbagging on purpose to protect the, it, it the comes, business that exists? Is it more yeah. an ex, uh, you know it's just new and they're slower to evolve? It to me it comes down to they they want to own the customer. They they want to they want to be the last mile in in the relationship to the customer and they don't want partly partly they you know the lip service here is that they're defending the customer experience they don't want PlayStation gamers to have a bad experience on the PlayStation store. They don't want them to get ripped off and play a game that, you know, asks them for money that they didn't want to pay. And so they make decisions that limit the ability to expose your monetization flows to, you know, their in-store UI and requires you to use Steam Wallet to deduct funds, which adds basically a third monetization flow to all of the existing flows in your game because you have to go top up your Steam Wallet and then you have to convert your Steam Wallet into premium currency in the game in there doing it yeah and not it's, fun it's not like if you have to if you have to get people to, to convert three times it's harder than getting them to convert twice which is also harder than getting them to convert once and that's the difference between the mobile space the web space and the console space right now so the number of times you have to get people to jump through hoops radically affects the likelihood of them getting to the end of that funnel so so is it me or is, or is there like a huge opportunity for an Apple or a Google to make like a high powered TV, you know, thing that sits next to your TV and lets you play like amazing high definition games that then those games are basically on an open platform where, you know, and you set it up so that you can actually like run an ad on Facebook and the thing will appear on your console ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, so better integration into the shopping experience is one of the challenges. Yeah. You have to solve the acquisition problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to solve servicing and acquisition, right? If you want a free to play game to work, you need to actually be able to get hundreds of thousands or millions of eyeballs to see the game. And the, 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 the digital store is the PlayStation store. Like it's not a default part of the, of the, even the user experience because user who have bought PlayStations are accustomed to living in a world where like they're not being marketed to. They've paid for that hardware and they pay for the games that they want. And so there is, again, there's animosity there, right? They are getting marketed. I mean, you get marketed to it's, it's, really hard it's true on now. all those platforms. It's true now. now. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm dating myself. I'm still on a PS3 and I use it mostly as an entertainment console than a, than a gaming uh, rig. I'm, I'm, I do really most of my personal gaming as PC at this point. Um, but consoles look free to play on consoles is, is already here and mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be really robust. And I would say less than five years, it's not all the way there yet, but they're getting way better. And they understand everybody, everybody in the gaming world understands the shift to a, really a software as a service. It's games as a service is, is the, the new model. Microtransactions are a hundred percent here to stay. Even in, in premium price products like Overwatch is a $60 box and they've got microtransactions. Destiny. Destiny. Every single thing. Everything. FIFA. Madden. Everything. They're here. They're not going anywhere. And companies are now struggling with fit matching. They're looking for what is the monetization mechanic that aligns with these products that we're trying to build and design. Blizzard is doing a great job. EA and their sports games. It's actually very interesting to me. FIFA Ultimate Team was probably the first thing that I ever had whale-like spend on. You know, I spent 60 bucks to buy the box and easily put hundreds of dollars into buying my Ultimate Team Which year, which platform? Uh, This was PlayStation 3, probably the second year that Ultimate Team was out. I want to say 2014, maybe 2015. That was actually my first introduction into the, the random card pack mechanic. They're trying to also apply Ultimate Team to football. I found it far less compelling in the in football than I did in FIFA, and I never really put my finger on why. But I think it had a lot to do with the just the nature of this sort of more determined gameplay in football, where you're running play after play, and the skill of an individual player at any given moment does not necessarily feel like it's it has an outsized impact on the results. Most of your players game. don't touch the ball in football, for exactly. One and, and that's another you know one of the things I don't think I've seen anybody do particularly well is multiple endpoints for the for the same IP. You know, what is the companion app experience to to Madden that actually has some impact on your console experience? Is there is there a world where and I do believe that somebody's going to come up with a product that's going to do that well and it's going to be really compelling to see. You know, Pokemon was such an interesting flash in the pan in terms of of what inter- a flash. What a flash, right? I mean, it's more of an explosion than a flash, but they that was such a craze and it introduced AR as a concept in a way that I think is going to be beneficial to the whole industry. There's going to be a land rush of people to try and, you know, duplicate that success with different IPs and slightly different mechanics, but taking the same, the same kind of core use case and turning it into a a new game. Last question before I let you go. And thank you for being so, so generous with your time. My pleasure. What do you think about free to play on, on VR? And, and that might be a platform where they do open it up more. I, I mean, I think any platform that has the opportunity for creative expression has the opportunity to be gamified and monetized with a free-to-play mechanic. There's, it's such an open field. I do think that, you know, again, going back to the, like the PM mind, if you look at the VR ecosystem and you're trying to plot out what a free-to-play success might look like, you have to start with what's the size of the ecosystem, how many people have the hardware. And so there are ecosystem growth concerns that I have before I would be really just willing to dive in there because I don't think that a free-to-play game is, is the loss leader, right? It's not the use case that's going to drive hardware sales to get people into that ecosystem. You need a more compelling use case to grow the hardware base 
And once the hardware base reaches critical mass, then you start to see this these products that don't have a premium price on right. them that, that start to become viable in, in that ecosystem. Yeah. But I think once we get to that point, if we get to that point, because it's not clear to me, you know, GDC last year was just littered with VR startups, everybody trying to do something with it. And there's going to be a big shakeout in terms of what that turns into for, for a, a game experience standpoint. There's lots of questions in my mind about the the interaction mode. How are you actually controlling the avatars that you have in these games? Is it you know a three dimensional space you're walking around in? Are you holding a controller in, in your hand? The physical risks associated with wandering around in your living room and knocking your plants over. A lot of these have things. Have you used the Oculus Touch controllers? I have. I have very very briefly. I mean, you know, I've put all of the headsets on my brain for uh, a, a few minutes at different demos, but haven't spent a ton of time with any of them. I still have. Um, I, I react to low latency. I get dizzy mm-hmm. if I if I leave the headsets on. A for lot too of people long. do. Yeah, and that's look. That's a challenge to the hardware growth of the ecosystem, right? Like goes back to what is the, what's the possible install base that you have available to you? Uh, consoles relative to the PC ecosystem suffer from that a little bit as well. You know, if I was going free to play on only one console, it's PlayStation Four because they've they've sold what they've definitely the most. I'm not sure it's double, but it's it's a lot more than, than Xbox at this point well i you know it's, it's very interesting because you're right like so far free to play on consoles been really on whatever hardware has the largest install base and it's been kind of like taking you know world of tanks and putting it on an, an xbox 360 or something like that but i could see a sony or a microsoft getting behind a game and using it to help sell the product because you can give an amazing game away for free and you could show that on the box hey this comes with yeah you know, this awesome shooter. Yeah. Um, we'll see if we get there. Gordon, it was great having you on the show and great having you on site. You know, this is, it was really cool. I think it actually, you know, made for a great interview to be able to look at you and talk to you like this. I uh, wouldn't have it any other way. You know, <laughs> Skype is so impersonal and we've had so many Skype phone calls in the past that this just seemed like the, the way we had to do it. Yeah. So, so Gordon and I have done, have done a little work together in the past and, and it was all over Skype. So this was our first time meeting in person and, uh, and it's been a pleasure. Let's, let's go get a beer. Let's do it, man. Thank you for listening to Playmakers Podcast. If you want to show us some love, here's how you do it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google whatever. You can subscribe. You can shoot me an email. You can tell me what guests you want to have, what topics you want covered. What would you like to learn more about? What are you struggling with in your game development process, in your game career, in your game-based venture or business? I'm here to help you get it done. That's how we do. Catch you on the next one. Hey, are you still here? The episode is over. So if you're here, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're going to go on and listen to some more episodes. Hope you're going to leave a review and all that goodness. But I also wanted to just remind you that I am doing it's sort of an experiment right now to see if this is something that people want that people are responding to with coronavirus with 2020 with the move to remote work with the move to distributed development. Do you need help finding the right resources, the right external partners? I will do my best to help you. Drop me an email, jordan at brightblack.co. We'll figure out exactly what your need is, and uh, and I'll do my best to point you in the right direction. Simple as that. Okay, uh, thanks. Have a great day.
year? Hmm, how do I say this? <laughs> Have a great day. Catch you later.